Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to be sharing again from the book of Ephesians. Now, if you're looking for a church to call your own, a place that you can worship and a people that you connect with, let me invite you to join us at Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, but you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com or email us in info at calvaryfayetteville.com or give us a call at 479-442-4634. Well, again, Pastor Kirk is sharing from the book of Ephesians with a message entitled Rooted and Grounded in Love from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 6. Let's listen together. Friends, everything that Paul has taught us in the first two and a half chapters of the book of Ephesians demands doesn't just suggest, but demands a view of the church that it is so high that it absolutely challenges belief. The view of the Bible, the view of the New Testament, the view of the Apostle Paul and John and Peter and other New Testament writers their view holds the Lord's church in such high esteem, such high regard, that it challenges our belief today as 21st century Americans. You see, when every other world power, when every other political philosophy, when every other religious and belief system fails and passes away into oblivion, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will still be standing. You will still be standing. I will still be standing. The church is central to everything God has done and everything God is doing in the world. Everything in the Old Testament pointed towards it, everything in the New Testament fulfills it, and everything as the word goes forward propels that gospel of Christ and his church forward into our time to the end of time. Everything that uh, God has done in the world, the church is central to that, and it is central to your life as well. Now, last week I left you with three points at the very close, didn't comment on them hardly at all, and so we start at this point today by way of introduction, that when you look at the Scripture, you'll find that Scripture calls us to recognize and to revere the immense centrality of the church in all things. John Stott suggested three areas in particular. We said this last week that the church, first of all, is central to history. It is central to history. I've never in my years in school, 
until I got to Bible college and studied church history and religious history and studied even world history in light of the Christian message in the Bible, I never encountered a class that brought the Bible or brought religious history into the study of the history of man. Whether it was physical history, whether it was cultural history or anthropology or whatever. But I want to tell you that that leaves a great blank in your education and in mine because the church is central to history. The church is a new humanity. God created them male and female. And later by designation, he designated them Jew and Gentile. But Jesus, with his sacrifice on the cross, and with the preaching of the gospel, God has made us new creations in Christ Jesus, and it is a third whole human race. Christians are a race unto themselves. They have been called into this multiracial, multinational third race. And all of the political and social and religious systems, as I've already said, will not survive history. Only the church will. So the church is central to history. Number two, the church is central to the gospel. That the complete gospel we find in the book of Ephesians and throughout the New Testament involves not only the preaching of Christ, but also the preaching of the mystery of the church that you don't have uh, an adequate Christian life just living it solo. That the, that the Lord, when He saved you out of your sins, He saved you into something. He saved you into the church. And this whole single new humanity of the church is central to the gospel. It's a key part of the gospel. Number three, number three the church is central to Christian living. Bottom line, understand this. You cannot live a God-honoring Christian life without a deep commitment to and connection to the Lord's church. Did you hear me? You cannot live a God-honoring life without a deep commitment to the church and to the local commitment to the local church uh, which is a representation of the church at large. You have to have the church for your Christian life. You have to have it to please God. It's not an option. Paul's gospel, as we've said, was Christ and the church. So I say this to you as we get into today's text. To neglect the church or to disregard the church is to do so at the peril of your own soul. It is to do so at the peril of the souls of your family that you influence, that you live alongside. Jesus died for that truth. Paul believed and preached that truth. And we must deal with it today. In a time when the church of Christ is being neglected and disregarded and ignored and relegated to the sidelines, we need the Lord's church more than ever. Okay, so last week we said in chapter 3, verse 1, that Paul starts off on a train of thought in chapter 3 by saying the words, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, 
and then he changes horses he, midstream. He, he starts off on a train of thought, and you see in your Bibles that line, that, that straight line, that, that means what he's about to say is, is something different. And, and he shifts gears, and he doesn't complete his thought. Well, today, he's going to pick back up in verse 14 with that thought of this gospel. I was made a minister, and then verse 14, for this reason. So he starts verse 1 and verse 14 exactly the same, for this reason. In the middle of those, we said, was a big parenthesis that he talked about the church. He talked about about the mystery of the church and how great it is that Jews and Gentiles have been made one in the Lord. He, he's still experiencing the afterglow of chapter 2 where he talked about how God made us alive even though we were dead by reason of our sins. And he tore down the wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. And he returned to that and gloried in that a little bit more and even told us, guess what? This one new human race of which you and I belong to we are being watched by the angels of heaven because they don't know the full story of God's plan. They're learning by watching us. As well as the demons of hell, the principalities and powers of darkness. They are watching us to see what God is up to. What are we teaching the angels with our lives? It's an amazing truth. And so in verse 14, he comes back to his thought. He's going to come back to his prayer. And this is what he says. Follow along with me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I've said this with every passage we've encountered so far from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation, or to, <laughs> to Revelation, to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, this is an incredible passage of Scripture. I just keep being amazed week after week to these verses that, that I've looked at thousands of times, and I'm amazed all over again. It's an incredible section of Scripture, but let me also say this. It closes out the first half of what Paul is going to say to the Ephesians. Okay? Paul's manner when he writes his letters and he organizes his thoughts this way, whether it's Ephesians, whether it's Philippians, Colossians, or whatever, especially those books, the first half of the book is doctrinal. The first half is theological. The first half he is teaching us deep spiritual truth. And then about midway, 
he'll shift gears and he'll get very practical. And he'll take this truth and he'll apply it in some very practical ways. We're going to find out that the truths of chapters 1, 2, and 3, when we get over to chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's going to te teach us about how to get along in marriage. Boy, that's practical, isn't it? He's going to talk to us about spiritual warfare. That's very practical. He's going to talk to us about how to get along with each other in church. But you see, to be able to do the practical side of things, you've got to be able to know and understand the doctrinal side of things. The order is very important. Many people are going to church today, and they're going to churches all over the countryside, and they are flocking after churches that will, where they have teaching that will give them three or four very easy how-tos about this or that, how to be, you know, a successful businessman, how to be a successful dad, how to be a successful, how to have a successful family. Uh, again, very, very practical, but a lot of how-tos, and they'll leave there armed with a lot of how-tos, and people will do their best to do those how-tos and wonder why it doesn't stick. If you don't have a theological, doctrinal understanding of God, of God and His Word, of God and His church, if you're not growing in your knowledge of the Word, all the practical how-tos will not do you any good at all. Did you hear that? It's just the truth. And I want to tell you, it's not just people in the pew, it's preachers that have a problem with this. There are pastors uh, absolutely melting down and coming apart at the seams. Pastors who have thousands of people in their churches that in a matter of no time they built a church of ten or 15,000 people and that church absolutely come apart at the seams and the pastor too. Why? Because they're very talented men that have a lot of charisma and a lot of skills and a lot of how-tos and they've learned a lot of, of uh, this, shortcuts and that. But let me tell you something about the Christian life. There are no shortcuts in the Christian life. Folks, that's why it's important. Listen to me. That's why it's important. And that's why you hear me emphasizing more and more so much to the point that I know you get sick of hearing it. You need to be in church day after day after day on the Lord's day. You just need to be in church. Why? Because you build, you build a, an understanding of Scripture and doctrine. You build a framework for a Christian life one brick at a time one brick at a time. I'm getting something going on up here, Steve. Um, it might just be the rhythm of my soul beating out a some kind of beat up here. Um, but, but you know, if, if some of you went to work the way that you come to church, you'd have been fired a long time ago. You just would have. You wouldn't keep your job. You wouldn't keep your job missing 20% of the work days. But it's not unusual. Did you know that you can miss 20 or 30% of the Sundays of church and still be considered faithful in most churches? 
But when you look and, and, the, and the calendar is littered by this Sunday marked off and that Sunday marked off for this event over here and for that family get-together over there and for that other thing I want to go and do over there and you are away from God's house and away from the steady, slow growth in the Word of God, understand it wrecks your own soul and it also leaves a poor, poor testimony to those that you have influence over. That's why it's important to be consistent. Doctrine first, then the practical part. So we are finishing up the doctrinal part. And it doesn't mean there's not any doctrine in chapters 4, 5, and 6. It just means that he's going to get very practical with what to do with the truth that he's taught. Does that make sense? Okay. Let me take you on a quick walk through this prayer. And, and I hate to take you on too quick a walk through it because it, it's, it's pretty amazing. It, it falls into three categories. First of all, Paul gives a preface to the prayer, a preface, that's verse 14 and 15. Then Paul lays out some petitions. Those are the things he's praying for, the petitions. And the number three, he concludes his prayer with praise. Okay, a preface, petitions, and praise. And so um, uh, that's what we will uh, look at here. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now let's just pause right there. Because I think uh, Paul lays out a couple of things. I, I think that preface basically explains to whom we pray to. To whom that we pray to. And I think that there's two things worthy of note in those two verses. First of all, Paul's posture in prayer, his posture. What is his posture? What does he say at the very beginning in verse 14? What is it? Yeah, I bow my knees. I bow my knees. Now that's worthy of note. Did you know that? It's worthy of note for this reason. In a Jewish culture, in the Old Testament times, even today in a Jewish culture, bowing is not the norm for praying. It is not the norm. The norm is to stand and pray. If you go to Jerusalem today, some of you have been there, you can go to the western wall, right, the nearest place to the, uh, to the Holy of Holies where it was a couple of thousand years ago, and you see those Jewish men, and you, and you see another section marked off, Jewish women, and you can even go down there as a Gentile to the Jewish men. You put a little paper, you know, be anything on your head, so your head will be covered. And uh, I forgot what that thing's called. But anyway, you go down there, you go to the western wall, the ancient wall, huge stones. And the first thing you notice is that all the cracks of that wall, there's little pieces of paper, prayers that are tucked into it. But you see these Jewish men holding the scripture before them, and you see them swaying back and forth in front of that wall. The normal position for prayer in the Jewish culture is to stand and pray or even to stand with hands raised in prayer. Sometimes as those men get very fervent in their prayers, they'll step back and they'll step towards and they'll get to where they're almost back and forth running towards and stepping back that, uh, that place of prayer. That is the norm. So what is this deal about bowing for prayer? Well, you read about it in Scripture. For instance, you can read about uh, uh, in Scripture the, uh, 
King Solomon, for instance, when the temple was completed and they were dedicating the temple, there was a wooden platform at the dedication of the temple, and Solomon the king, in all of his royal garb, he knelt down and prayed. You find also that Jesus, going to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, what did he do? He knelt down. He fell on his face to pray. You find in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul, the last time he's going to see the elders, the pastors of this very church he's writing to here, uh, of, of the church at Ephesus. He meets with them down by the uh, uh, Mediterranean Sea, and he knows it's the last time, and they kneel together to pray. Understand that kneeling does take place, but it's only under extraordinary events. Extraordinary events. It happens when something that is so out of the ordinary that, that we kneel rather than stand. So basically when Paul says here that I bow my knees, there is something motivating him to say that this, what, what he's praying for, why he's praying here, that this isn't just any old prayer. And can I say to you, there is no such thing as any old prayer. It's always extraordinary when we have the privilege, is it not? It, it is a wonderful privilege. But here, there is something that is drawing him to his knees. As Peter O'Brien said in his commentary on Ephesians, humble posture and approach of the worshiper who feels his need so keenly they, that he could not stand upright before God. That's what kneeling is. It's when he felt, when it is the, uh, the posture of the worshiper who feels so keenly the presence of God and that he's standing before God that it causes him to fall to his knees. Okay, so here's the question. What could cause Paul to feel that way? Well, I, I think we can only guess at it but I think there are two things, and I don't want to dwell here too long because um, it, it's not the main part of what I want to share with you today. I think one, thinking back to what he has already said in chapter 1 and chapter 2. You see that, that thought of chapter 2 that God has torn down that middle wall of partition uh, separating Jews and Gentiles, and he has brought them together on an equal basis, an equal standing before God, one new person in Christ. This great mystery that was once hidden, but has now been revealed as truth. This is so stupendous, it absolutely causes Paul to just fall to his knees in wonder and praise of how marvelous God is. It already interrupted his prayer. He started to pray and he stopped to talk about it a little more. And so here it just moves him to his knees. I think something else moves him to his knees. Not, uh, not just or not only the glorious salvation of chapter 2, but the glorious truth of God's affection that he's fixing to pray about in chapter 3. He's going to talk about in his prayer the love of God. And it's the main theme and thought of his prayer. And he's going to say that, that God's love has some dimensions to it. If you could but just understand the breadth, the width, the length, 
the height, the depth. If you could just even begin to understand the love of God in all of its width, length, height, and depth, it would change your life forever. And Paul is saying, it has me. And just thinking about it puts me on my knees. Well, that's his preface. And already we're about chin deep in glory and in truth. Amen. I think above everything else. I think above everything else. What he's saying to us is, this is no ho-hum prayer, so don't you dare approach this scripture in a ho-hum way, wondering when church is going to be over so you can get to your lunch and your ho-hum nap. It doesn't fall in the same category. So he said some things about posture. He also said some things, well, I, I would consider this a proposition. What did he call God in those first two verses, verses 14 and 15? How did he refer to God? He said at the end of verse 14, he expanded on it in verse 15. What is it? Father. He called God Father. It is normal to pray to God. It's normal for a Jewish man to pray to Yahweh, to call out the name of the great creator and savior God, but to be so abrupt so as to refer to God in a personal way as Father. Folks, I want to tell you, I believe that is the best name to go to God in prayer with. I hear people addressing God as, as God. Dear God, and that's fine. He is God. Amen. But God is very impersonal. He is God whether you claim a relationship to Him or not. But when you call someone father, you're claiming a connection, are you not? You see, in the Hebrew mind, the idea of father suggested intimacy, dignity, and authority. And I wonder, if you think of God in terms of those three terms, do you think of being intimate with your heavenly father, of a closeness of relationship, and a kindred spirit with your father? Do you think of him in a dignified way? Do you think of his authority over your life? That's what Father represents. That's what it suggests. And, and I think Paul is offering up a proposition here that, listen, when we go to God in prayer, we're not just talking about the creator, sustainer, you know, cosmic God way out there somewhere. We're talking about a father who is the father over the whole human race, though he's not the spiritual father of the whole human race. He is only the Christian spiritual father, but he's the originator, the author of the whole human race and all of the angels of heaven. He is the father over heaven and earth, every tribe, every clan, every nation, every family, but most of all over you and me as his own children. What a proposition that is. Well, that's his preface to the prayer. Very quickly, let's move on to his petitions. His petitions. But Dan, that clock that you uh, put up that your mama was so kind to buy for us, it runs too fast. 
Is there a way that we can slow that down? Maybe just a look into that this week. Would you do that? His petitions. These are found in verse 16 through 19. And this answers the question, for what should we pray? Now Paul prays for three things for these Ephesian believers. And you can mark every one of them because they actually are signified by the word that. T-H-A-T. Look at the first word of verse 16. That, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then you see that next, in the middle of verse 17, that next word, that, this is request number two, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And there in the middle of verse 19 you find the third one, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That, 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 three requests. First of all, he requested, he prayed for strength for the Ephesians. He prayed for strength. That according to the riches of his glory, out of God's storehouse of blessings, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that are resulting in Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. Now notice this strength and he comes to us. This strength comes with power. It comes through the Spirit. And it comes to our inner being. Paul prays for strength for you. Spiritual strength. That's what we need to pray for each other. Folks, he's teaching us how to pray for one another in the church. Pray for one another to have inner spiritual strength. The strength that comes from God the Holy Spirit. The strength that comes to our inner being, our souls, so that even though our body, as he tells the Corinthians, may be wasting away every day, within we are growing stronger and stronger and stronger. Did you know that's how to pray for the church around the world as well, especially in persecuted places? If you want to pray for believers in Afghanistan, pray for the strength of the Spirit to be with them. That though many of them will die martyrs' deaths, don't pray that, you know, it's okay if you want to pray for God to spare them suffering. But I'm going to tell you, if they could come here today and tell you how to pray for them, that's not what they would ask for. That's an American mindset. The idea, oh God, spare them from suffering. Why? Because we want to be spared from suffering. We don't want to hurt. We don't want to have to pay the price for our faith. But that's not what they would say. They would say, pray for us that we will not betray the Lord. Pray for us that we will not deny our faith. Pray for us that we will have the courage to face death with praise on our lips, standing firm 
for God. We need to pray for that kind of strength for one another and for Christians around the world. Then notice the second thing he told them to pray for. He prayed for them. He prayed for knowledge and comprehension. This begins in the middle of 17. That you being rooted and grounded in love, that's what will happen as a result of of the strength. You'll be rooted and grounded in love. You may have strength to comprehend, to understand, to have knowledge with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The smartest man alive does not have the ability to comprehend the depth of God's love. The most brilliant mind that has ever existed cannot comprehend the love of God. Why? Because it requires a spiritual comprehension. I once had a Sunday school class of college students a number of years ago when I was pastor at First Baptist Church of, of Red Oak. And, and most we, mostly we just had, you know, a handful of uh, of just, you know, small town country kids and great kids, a great Sunday school class, great discussion of, of Bible truths, of deep Bible truths. But we had one particular student there that grew up in that church who was brilliant. He was working on his doctorate. Colby was incredibly smart. I mean, he just thought on such a different level. I, you kind of had a hard time having a conversation with him. But he was studying some kind of electro, I don't know what all it was. I can't, I can't even say what he was studying. That shows you the place I'm in. And, and, he, and he sat there week after, he was so faithful and so faithful to the church. But I'm going to tell you, the last time I saw him, he was about 20 or 21. And he had never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior. Why? Because something about all of that, all of the biblical stuff, just went counter to his rational mind that wanted to understand it all completely only on a mental level. He was not willing to acknowledge the work of the Spirit, the work of the supernatural. Faith to him was something that was for fools, basically. And to my knowledge, he never, and unless the Lord absolutely just breaks through that brilliant mind and crushes him, he will never, ever set foot inside of heaven. I'm not saying that God ever asked you and me to commit intellectual suicide to believe in Jesus. We have no reason to be afraid of truth. We have no reason to be afraid of knowledge. We have no reason to be afraid of the university, any university. We have no need to be afraid of science. The Bible and Christianity are not anti-science. Historically, they have always been very pro-science. But understand that the modern scientific method has some presupposed biases. And those presupposed biases are these. There is no God. There is no supernatural. Okay? It says that those things have to be true. There is no God and there is How do you know? Scientifically, how have you proven that? 
You see, they break their own rules, setting their own rules, but they try to lay the ground rules that will leave faith on the outside always. Well, understand that, that when, when the Lord is talking here about comprehending, He's talking about a spiritual comprehension. A spiritual comprehension. We need to pray for one another that we will comprehend the love of God in our lives. Did you know there's nothing that will change your life more than your comprehension of the love of God for you? Can I tell you something? This is my problem I've always struggled with. I have no problem doubting God's love for any of you. God loves you. And if you could just comprehend how much... The, the person I have a problem with is how God could love me. That's who I have a problem with. I need to better comprehend the love of God for my life. The height and the depth and the length and the breadth of how great God's love is. Why? Because that will root us and ground us. Now, those are two different words. Rooted is an agricultural word. The plant or the tree is only as strong as what? Its roots. Uh, grounded is an architectural term. It is a building term. A building, no matter how high and how grand the superstructure is, it is only as strong as what? Its foundation. And so he's saying our roots and our foundation are the love of God. And we've got to understand that. It will change our lives. It will help us in our struggle with sin. It will help us in our struggle with people that we don't get along with. It will change us on every level. And he prays for a third thing. It's the last phrase of verse 19. He refers that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now I want to suggest some of you are full of it but not always the right thing. Isn't that the problem? Then our lives are going to be filled with something. Did you know that? What's the old saying? Garbage in, what? Garbage out. What is filling your heart and your soul? Parents, what are you seeing to that fills the mind and the heart of your children or your grandchildren? or those that you teach, or lead, or influence. Our minds and hearts are filled with so much stuff today. So much so, because of the blue screen, we can't stand silence. So a TV is going, a phone screen is going, a computer screen is going, virtually all the time. We have so much information coming into us all the time, and it all influences us. We are all filled with something. What are you filled with? Paul's prayer for these Ephesians is that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Okay. So very quickly before we make the last point and close out, I'm way over time and you know that already. Paul prayed for three things for these people. In this may be greatest of all prayers. He prayed for strength, a spiritual strength for their inner being. He prayed 
for knowledge and comprehension, a greater understanding of the love of God and the Word of God. That's where you get that, is from the Word of God. And a filling of the fullness of God. Now, as you think about those three things, notice what Paul did not pray for them. He did not pray for protection from those big bad Romans that were always trying to cut off their heads. He did not pray for physical blessings, health, wealth, or happiness, although many of these very church members had lost their livelihood, had lost their careers because they quit making idols to false gods. He didn't pray for prosperity or jobs for them. He didn't even pray for guidance to help them in the next steps they need to make and the decisions they had to make. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with praying for any of those things, is there? There's nothing wrong with praying for physical healing. We're even taught that in Scripture, book of James. There's nothing wrong with praying for guidance. There's nothing wrong with praying for prosperity and blessings so that we might bless others. There's nothing wrong with praying for protection. But it's just not the, the number one tier of what's important. It's a second or third tier request. And yet, can I say to you that in most prayers, in most churches that I've experienced all my life, and don't deny it, you too, I don't know that I have ever heard in any prayer meeting or any prayer where these things right here have been even prayed in church. We've prayed for all that other stuff. We've prayed for second and third tier things that some people in the world have and some don't. They're not the necessary life-changing things. And folks, I'm going to tell you, you will never find Paul praying for anything that would, now follow me here, that would deepen believers' roots into this life, into this world, or their dependence on it. If you getting that promotion would deepen your roots into this world and your dependence and your love of this world, I pray that you will not get that promotion. In fact, I ought to just pray that you get fired. They'd be better for your soul. Sometimes, sometimes, losing our prosperity is the best thing for us. Amen? Paul never prayed for believers to deepen their roots into this world, only that they would deepen their roots into God and prepare them for the next. Well, he closes with a word of praise. That's the third part, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, he, we are pray why do we pray? We pray because God is able God is able. We praise because He is worthy. Verse 21, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That verse 20, I think probably Paul struggled more with that sentence than any sentence of any letter he ever wrote. I mean, just read it. Just read it. He's having a hard time getting his thought in mind. This is how it might have gone. He's sitting there writing verse 20. To him who can do what we ask. 
No, 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 wait a minute, that's not right. To him who can do more than, than what we ask. No, that's not good enough. To him he can do more abundantly than what we ask. That still doesn't get it, no, and he erases that. To him he can do far more abundantly than what we ask. No, that still doesn't get it. To him he can do far more abundantly than all that we ask. Oh, that's so close, but that's still not it. And then he lands on it. To him who can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, that gets it. That's what kind of God he is. That's what kind of God he is. You know what, folks? You know what most of us do? We pray as if God was bankrupt. That's what we pray like. We don't ask him for anything that's so big and so stupendous that stretches his ability to fulfill or give us what we ask for. We don't pray. We don't ask God for big things. We ask God for things small enough. That way, if he doesn't actually come through, we won't know one way or the other if he answered our prayers or not. How about a God who can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think? To that God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Desiring God, the teaching ministry of John Piper has this slogan for their ministry that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. How glorified is God in your life? How glorified is God in my life? The degree to which we are satisfied in Him, to that degree, He is glorified in us. Can I ask a favor of you? If you ever pray for me as your pastor again, it is okay with me if you never pray for any physical blessings for me. That's okay. If you never pray for any direction that I may need in life, if you would just pray for spiritual strength, for the ability to comprehend the love of God, and that I would be filled with the fullness of Christ, I would be quite happy and quite content in that prayer offered up on my behalf. Well, I had something else to share with you, but it's too much to squeeze in here at the close. Let me leave you with this prayer as our musicians come. My prayer is this very same prayer, but I want to read it to you. Let's consider, even though I'm reading it, it is being offered up, okay? It is being offered up. And it is the paraphrase that Eugene Peterson, how he paraphrased this passage in his Bible version called The Message. My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his Spirit. Not a brute strength, 
but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything, you know. Far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, His Spirit deeply and gently within us. Glory to God in the church. Glory to God in the Messiah in Jesus. Glory down all the generations. Glory through all millennia. Oh, yes. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.